Accepted with Jay Monique and and we are joined by the very honorable Dr. Umar Johnson. How are you doing today? All is well, good queen. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. We're honored by your very presence. Yes, yes, yes. Loving that interview you did on The Breakfast Club as well. Loved it. I, I believe you, you, you played that, and I love how um, how you're just such a strong force for the, the black community. And um, I, I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you very much. And shout out to The Breakfast Club, Charlemagne the God, DJ Envy, and Angela Yee for bringing me back up there once again for a very necessary conversation. Shout out to them. Oh, yes, yes, a very necessary conversation. Uh, so uh, one of the first questions I wanted to ask, because um, what, what we do on Reality Interceptor, we do talk a lot about uh, these issues, especially injustices and, and things like that. So um, how do you feel about the police brutality that that has happened for pretty much almost forever, um, but it's just almost in the recent years ended up more in the media and on social media and people catching it on their cell phones and things like that. What's your take on the the police's uh, nature towards black people? Well, the police have always been the strong arm of oppression. The police's job going back to the slave patrols that operated on the plantations during slavery they have always had the responsibility of keeping black people in their place. And they have always sacrificed black life as a means to teach those who were still alive a lesson as relates to challenging the white power structure. But I think that the most recent resurgence in police genocide against black people is a after is a aftershock of the Barack Obama presidential campaign. I believe that when Obama got elected, a lot of politically uneducated white people interpreted that to mean that black people were taking over the country. And as you know, white people started buying more guns during the Barack Obama presidency than they had purchased for almost a hundred years. They were buying up all the guns, buying up all the ammunition because they actually thought that a black president in the White House actually meant that black people were taking over the country. And a lot of police would rightly also fall in that category of politically uneducated white folk. And I think what added a lot of fuel to the fire with the police genocide campaign that grew out of the anger that white people experienced having to see a black man in the White House was the fact that that very black man that they had to tolerate in the White House was also unwilling to speak up and say anything in defense of black people as a result of the police killings. So you have white folk angry because you have a black president. And then ironically, that very same black president empowered them to continue to take innocent black life by not using his force of office to do anything about it. So when I say force of office, some people would say, well, what would you expect him to do? He's a black president in a predominantly white country. Be that as it may, the president of the United States is by law the chief law enforcement officer in the country. 
So whenever a police officer takes a life and gets away with it, they get away with it with the full complicity and support of the president of the United States because he is the chief law enforcement officer. And I think there were some very simple things that Barack Obama could have done to try to contain the police genocide. He did not start it. He's not going to end it, but he could have attempted to contain it. And the one thing that he really could have done is he could have required, he could have initiated and demanded a full Department of Justice investigation into the systematic killing of defenseless unarmed black people by the police. That is something very simple that he could have ordered as president and he refused to do it. I totally agree with you on it. Yes, especially him being black. I mean, regardless of the color, no, black, no innocent person should die at the hands of police, but especially because he's black, that should have been that voice for all black people, especially that he has the highest uh, position in office in this entire country. In the conversation. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say in the conversation. (laughs) The conversation that black people have to have, because I believe it sends a very dangerous message to our children, and that is the conversation centered around what exactly constitutes a black hero. What exactly constitutes a black role model? Because most African-Americans would consider Barack Hussein Obama a hero, and they would consider him a role model. And of course, between the two of those, the hero obviously has a much higher standard of responsibility. But Barack Obama is both. So if we look at him from the perspective of a black hero, a hero is normally someone who goes above and beyond the call of duty to serve people who cannot serve themselves. A hero is someone who takes risks on behalf of the people. A hero is someone who unapologetically and courageously challenges the power structure to get concessions for their own community. Barack Obama does not meet the definition of hero, but yet and still he is considered one by black people. And I think that's a very dangerous message that we're sending to our children because what we're basically telling them is you don't have to do anything for black people. You can betray black people. You can turn your back on black people. You can pay all your attention to other minority groups and ignore your own and still be considered great as long as white people accept you. And that is a very dangerous message that we're sending to black children. Yes, it is. Yes, and speaking of black children, what uh, what's also sad is that uh, black children also know a lot of what's going on with the police, and they're actually scared of cops. Like when I was going to school, you ha- you used to have like the school resource officer at the school, and all the kids liked the resource officer, respected the resource officer, and now the kids don't even want to be around cops at all. I can speak on behalf of my two daughters. They're scared of cops. They've done nothing wrong, but they're scared of them. Yeah. So how do you and feel about mass incarceration of blacks? Well, mass incarceration is another aspect of the social, political, and economic control of black people. Mass incarceration is one of the greatest destroyers of the community, the black community, as well as the structure of the black family. The reason why teenage pregnancy is such a big problem. The reason why school dropout is such a big problem. 
the reason why we have so many homes headed by single black mothers, the reason why we have so many black boys in special education and diagnosed with ADHD and being prescribed dangerous psychiatric medication is because the fathers are not there. They were removed from the home. It was a deliberate design by the United States government to basically destroy black power by destroying the black power base, which is the black family in the black community. So by keeping black men out of the home and empowering black women to believe that they don't need fathers in those homes, they basically take out the foundation of the home and the community, which is the black man and the black woman. People have these conversations about who's most important, the black mother or the black father. For me, coming from a psychological standpoint, it's a ridiculous question because they are equally important. The black mother is just as important as the black father and the black father is just as important as the black mother. But sometimes, it can be made to appear that the mother's more important or the father's more important. And that's not true. We need them both. God gave us two parents for a reason. We need an equal amount of masculine nurture and we need an equal amount of feminine nurture. And when you get both, you grow up to be what? A emotionally, psychologically balanced person. If you grow up and you did not get an equal amount of masculine and feminine nurturance, meaning you got too much masculine single fatherhood or too much feminine single motherhood, you tend to grow up with an emotional imbalance. That doesn't mean that single mothers can't raise good children. They do it all the time. My mother did it. It doesn't mean single fathers can't raise good children on their own. They do it all the time. But what we're talking about in the field of psychology is the potentiality the potentiality of an imbalance that is likely to occur when a child does not get a balanced amount of masculine and feminine nurture. We cannot predict that the child will not be emotionally balanced, but we can say based on the odds that a child who is not raised with both a male and a female parent or parent figure is more likely be emotionally and psychologically imbalanced as opposed to someone who had both parents in their life. That's right. That's right. That's so true. So what's your take on reparations for blacks? Well, I support reparations. um, And reparations can come in many forms. And when I think about the current conversation that's being had about reparations, a couple of concerns come to my mind. One of the first concerns is it seems like the conversation is largely centered around a financial payout in the form of U.S. dollars. I am not a fan of that because as you know, the U.S. dollar isn't backed by any mineral wealth whatsoever. It is simply a promissory note cannot be exchanged for gold, it cannot be exchanged for silver, it cannot be exchanged for any mineral. So why would black folk, whose ancestors largely built this country, why would we be content with receiving a payout in paper money that doesn't have any material equivalent whatsoever for labor unpaid to our ancestors 
for work that the United States government will always benefit from. Our ancestors' labor is extremely valuable. It was valuable to this country, and it should be valuable to us. And a labor that is that valuable should not be compensated with money that is invaluable. That's number one. Number two, this conversation about reparations to me is very factionalized. It is very tribalistic, and it is very divided. Now, this is my pan-Africanist bias, because as a pan-Africanist, we believe that all African people in the world are one family. It doesn't matter if you live in Africa, if you live in Florida, if you live in Brooklyn, if you're in Philadelphia, if you're in London, Canada, if you're in the South Pacific, if you're in Jamaica, if you're in South America, it doesn't matter. Africans are one family. Whether we speak English or Spanish or French or Portuguese or Zulu or Tweet or Mandingo or Wolof, we're one family. Whether we're light skin or brown skin or tan skin or beige skin or blue, black, purple skin, we're one family. Whether we're under the American flag or the British flag or the South American flag or the Jamaican flag, we're still one family. And because we believe in African family first, we believe since there was only one slave trade, there was only one slave trade, just one, it came out of Africa and it took our ancestors all over the place. It took cousins and separated them. It took aunts and separated them from one another. It took uncles and separated them from one another. It took mothers and fathers and grandparents and separated them from one another. And since we were family before we left Africa, we should still operate as family outside of Africa. So for me, the reparations movement should be one movement. I don't I don't appreciate the fact that the Caribbean islands has its own reparations fight. And our brothers and sisters in England, where I'll be next spring, they have their own reparations fight. And our brothers and sisters in Africa, where I'll be in a couple months, they have they have their own reparations fight. And we in the United States, we have our own reparations fight. Why are we sectionalizing and factionalizing the reparations fight? There was one slavery and there was one family that was scattered and there should be one reparations. And the last two things that I would bring up. One is I haven't really heard a lot of conversation surrounding or, or sitting around the psychological cost of slavery. See, for me, the psychological residuals of slavery far outweigh the unpaid economic wages. The unpaid economic wages are almost nothing compared to the psychological trauma that the Ma'afa wreaked upon our ancestors. A trauma that has been passed down to us intergenerationally since slavery began 400 years ago. See, some white people will argue that American Africans alive today have no just claim to reparations because we ourselves did not directly suffer under the peculiar institution. Well, I would refute that argument on two grounds. Ground number one, the United States and the United Kingdom and other European governments during the 1940s went into the so-called Middle East, took land from the Palestinian people, gave it to European Jews creating an international homeland for European Jews from around the world. Not every European Jew suffered under Adolf Hitler's Holocaust, but every European Jew benefits from the state of Israel. 
And every European Jew is considered a citizen of Israel. And every European Jew, if they should so want to, can relocate to Israel. So if you're going to say that Africans living today don't have a claim to reparations owed to their ancestors, why do European Jews have a claim to the reparation given to them in the form of the state of Israel? If it's okay for the descendants of European Jews who suffered the Adolf Hitler Holocaust to reap the benefits of their ancestors' unpaid labor, then it is equally okay for us to reap the benefits of our ancestors' labor. And the other point that I would argue is even if you wanted to dismiss the fact that we are entitled to the economic benefit of our ancestors' unpaid labor, you cannot dismiss the fact that the psychological trauma that was reaped upon our ancestors going back 400 years all the way up to 154 years ago when slavery ended, that that trauma is experienced in us almost identically as it was experienced by our ancestors because trauma can be passed down intergenerationally. Even the American Psychiatric Association concedes that fact. The American Psychiatric Association concedes that fact. That when there is mental illness, mental illness can be passed down in the family intergenerationally until it is healed. So the fact that you and I did not experience slavery directly, you and I do experience the trauma of our ancestors directly. And the last point that I would make on the Ma'afa issue slavery is I am not and this goes back to the earlier point I am not looking for a financial payout because the benefit to America of African slavery and the benefit to France and the benefit to Germany and the benefit to UK and the benefit to Amsterdam and Harlem and all the other countries that participated in our dehumanization they can that benefit will always accrue to them. There will never be a time when America does not benefit from that enslavement because that enslavement was the foundation of this nation's economic greatness. Because they can never exhaust the benefit of enslavement, we should never exhaust the reparations for that enslavement. And what I mean by that is if they give you money, money can run out. But their benefit for slavery can never run out. So whatever we receive as compensation for our dehumanization should never expire. And so I think we need to have a much deeper conversation on reparations in the black community. Unfortunately, some of the brothers and sisters who are speaking up about this topic, I don't think that they are well enough educated. Or in, 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 in addition to that, I don't think they have thought deeply enough about this topic to be representing it in a public forum. I think we need to stop having the reparations conversations with white folks right now, and we need to have it with ourselves. And then only when we get on one accord should we then take it public. That's right. That's right. Well said. Very well said. And a lot of people don't think like that. They're just thinking about the, the money right. part the financial part if we got no, reparations no. today if we got reparations today hypothetically speaking and the united states government bequeathed to every african in this country descended from the enslaved they bequeathed to every one of us a million dollars hypothetically two million five million don't you know that all we would do is give that money right back to white america in the form of purchasing yeah. 
I mean, all we would do is go buy a home for white people, go buy a car for white people, go buy hair and nails and boots and Air Jordans and clothing and jewelry from white people. Literally, that money would cycle back out to the same people who gave it to us in 48 hours. Which is why I have a problem with us putting reparations at the top of the list of priorities for black people. I have no problem with it being a priority. Spiritually, it is the priority for me because my ancestors' pain has not yet been redeemed. So for me, spiritually, it remains a priority. Politically and economically, not as much because black people are acting like we're not out here shopping for Christmas gifts right this very minute, wasting tens of billions of dollars across this country buying useless Christmas gifts most of which none of us will be using two weeks after Christmas. So why are we prioritizing reparations as if we can't do anything without it while we're out here right now during the Christmas season hemorrhaging billions of dollars? To me, we're using reparations as a scapegoat and as a distractor from other more important issues that need to be taken up, like miseducation and economic castration and a lack of community solidarity and other things we need to be doing and we're using it as a distraction because we have enough money in the community right now disposable yes. income where we could begin to transform the black reality in this country we do not have to wait on reparations but the reason why you got negroes running around talking about we need reparations to change our situation is because black people are always looking for an excuse not to do anything right now. Wow. Yes. Um, do you think black people will ever come together as a whole? Do I think black people will ever come together as a whole? I believe that those of us who are sincerely committed to the freedom struggle of our people, I believe that we can come together as a whole. But I do not endorse a utopian approach to black liberation that suggests all black people will be a part of the freedom struggle. I don't agree with that. Because we have a lot of our community who are not interested in black liberation. They are not interested in black progress or black success. They are inflicted with what I call psychopathological selfishness. They only care about themselves, their families, their children, and their friends. They do not care about the community as a whole. The last thing they're thinking about is the best interest of the black community as a whole. And so for those individuals, I think they have to be politically castigated from the community because they are extremely dangerous with regard to where we need to go. So our job is to find like-minded black people, like-minded people who are willing to unite and use all legal means necessary to bring about our liberation. And we need to be clear, this is not about hating white people. I don't teach hate, I don't believe in hate, but it is about loving yourself enough to know that what is to be done for black people must be done exclusively by black people. That's right. Uh, so what do you think it will take for uh, blacks to achieve unity? 
it will take for those who care enough to become more active with positive works and organizations than those who don't care and put their energy into a lot of degenerate and destructive energy. In other words, as long as black folks who don't care are putting forth more work than black people who do care, we will never get anywhere. Those who care must put in more work than those who don't. I mean, look at it. We have to fight against gangster rap. We have to fight against reality TV. We got to fight against domestic abuse. We got to fight against treachery. We got to fight against gangs. We got to fight against miseducation. But on the other side of the aisle, you have black folks who are making a living off gangster rap, making a living off miseducating our children, making a living off locking up black people. You understand? So they're being paid, which is motivating them to do this every day, all day. We're not being paid. So the, 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 the negative community is being financed. The positive community is not. But the positive community has to become more motivated and more committed to black liberation than the negative community is motivated to make money through black destruction. If our motivation to achieve greatness does not exceed their motivation to destroy that greatness, we will never win. We hit it dead on the nail. on the, uh, nailed it, right? We nailed it. Yep. Tell us more about the, the Marcus Garvey Academy. So the Frederick Douglass and Marcus Garvey Academy is a school that we purchased in February of this year. It is a school that is going to train and educate black boys in the art of nation building. That's why the school exists, to produce nation builders. Uh, not to produce black bourgeoisie, not to produce uh, college prepared youth, but all of that and much, much more. We are building nation builders. That's why the school exists, to repair the black community. That's why we're. That's why we have that school, and we purchased it through the funds raised by the community, and we're now raising more funds to restore the campus. Uh, we need a million dollars in order to rehabilitate all four buildings on the campus, which includes two schools. And so we're asking everyone to donate as much as they can. They can donate three ways. You can donate on the cash app using dollar sign FDMG School. Again, that is cash.me slash dollar sign FDMG school. They can also mail in check or money order payable FDMG Academy P.O. Box 9634 Wilmington, Delaware. I repeat P.O. Box 9634 Wilmington, Delaware 19809. And if they don't want to donate using the cash app or if not able to mail in a check of money order, they can donate a third way by attending one of Dr. Umar's lectures in Florida. So I will be speaking in Orlando Friday, December the 27th at 6 p.m. at the First Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. The First Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, 700 Elm Avenue in Sanford, Florida. That's Friday the 27th, 6 p.m. in Sanford, or Saturday, December the 28th, the very next day, 4 o'clock, 
in Pahokee, Florida at the United Missionary Baptist Church in Pahokee, 225 Bacon Point Road. They could bring a check or money order to either Florida lecture next week. All right. So it sounds like uh, you're, you're definitely doing a lot of a lot of things. And is this part of the, the Kwanzaa tour? Yes, it is. It's part of the Kwanzaa tour. Jackson, Mississippi, the first day of Kwanzaa. Orlando, the second day of Kwanzaa. Pahokee, the third day of Kwanzaa. And we will end the tour in Detroit, Michigan on December 30th at the Charles Wright African American Museum. Okay, sounds interesting. Sounds interesting. I think a, a, a lot of people should definitely go and, and attend and, and, and support. Is there anything else Absolutely. that you would like everyone to know? Uh, the last thing that everyone knows know is that in 2020, I have committed to undertaking a 50 state national training tour for black parents to teach them their educational rights. And we are looking for someone in every state, all 50 states, to help us find a space, a location, a venue where we can host the training. We're looking for a space that can seat 150 black parents in chairs, seated at tables. It must be tables and chairs because it is a paperwork training. And it will be held on a Saturday in 2020 from 8 a.m. until 8 p.m. We've already confirmed Louisiana. We've confirmed Texas. We've confirmed Oklahoma. We've confirmed New York. We've confirmed Connecticut. We've confirmed New Jersey. We have not yet confirmed states such as Wisconsin. We have not confirmed South Carolina. We have not confirmed Florida. We have not confirmed Georgia. So if there's anyone who listens to your interview, uh, if they want to host, step up and help us, Host that training to teach black parents their educational rights. They need to know their rights about special ed, their rights about discipline, their rights about grading. They need to know what is autism, what is a learning disability, what is an intellectual impairment, what is ADHD, what is conduct disorder, what is an IEP, what is a 504 plan, um, what rights do you have against vaccinating your child to go to public or charter school. We're going to teach them everything from A to Z about educational rights and mental health rights. So if anyone wants to be a part of that, they can contact me, drumarjohnson.com, drumarjohnson at yahoo.com. They can also call 8444-DR-UMAR. Again, that's 8444-D-R-U-M-A-R. And we do want everyone in Florida to know that both lectures, Friday and Saturday, December 27th and December 28th of 2019 in Orlando and Pahokee are absolutely free for children and elders. 17 and under is absolutely free. 65 and older is also absolutely free. Okay, awesome. This is amazing. I like the things that you're doing, man. Like, keep up the good work. Um, you're awesome. You're very awesome, man. Thank I you, brother. And keep up the good work. Keep us updated with, with anything, and we'd love to interview you again in the, in the near future. Absolutely. Anytime. Just reach out and let me know, Corey.